Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are gathered at your feet tonight to recognize you as the great author of eternity and the great Lord of history. And Father, it's with a great thrill in our hearts that we come because we love you. And we're so conscious tonight that the eternal Father loves us and loves every person in this room. Father, we just want to bathe in that love tonight. And Father, at the beginning of this course, we just ask you to come and bathe us with the assurance of your presence. Father, with who you are, that we may be captivated again by the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Indeed, Father, we humble ourselves before you tonight, and we are standing in the awe of the presence of the mighty God. And we are asking, Father, that the meditations of our heart and the very words of our lips may be acceptable in your sight. Father, tonight, by your Spirit, just guide us, just lead us, that we may tread those paths of truth and might indeed feel the upbuilding as the Word of God goes inside each one of us and builds us up. Father, tonight, may your spirit of edification be on every one of us and on our ears and in our minds, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, having completed the first two basic Bible courses on salvation and on judgments, we come tonight to the marvelous subject of prophecy. And actually, we will be having two major basic Bible courses on prophecy, a total of 28 talks. I'm splitting them into two halves, that's series 3 and series 4. Series 3 is going to deal with the principles of prophecy and with fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And series 4 is going to deal with that part of prophecy which we call eschatology. And I better spell that. Eschatology, I've written it up for us, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. And by eschatology, we mean all the part of prophecy that deals with the last days. That is, with the rapture of the church, with the tribulation, with the second advent, with the millennium, with the eternal state, and so on, and all the details. Of this. Now, I have noticed that if people are teaching on prophecy, they tend to go to the bright lights immediately. But unfortunately, prophecy needs very he- careful handling indeed. And that is why we have 14 talks, first of all, on principles and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now, it may come as a bit of a surprise to some of you that we're spending so much time on prophecy. Because prophecy really today, as far as Bible teaching is concerned, is not terribly in vogue. But a Bible teacher has to teach the Word of God with the emphasis he finds in the Word of God. You've heard me say it before, I'm sure, and I'm going to say it again. That's why three-fifths of my Bible teaching is in the Old Testament. If you hear any Bible teacher say, well, of course, the Old Testament doesn't really concern us. We live in the New Testament. You have a man immediately who doesn't understand his Bible. Because the Old Testament finds its culmination in the New Testament, but the New Testament finds its explanation in the Old Testament. So two-thirds of my teaching is New Testament, and three, sorry, two-fifths and three-fifths is in the Old Testament, because I try and get the balance. Now, in the charismatic movement today, most uh, Bible studies are not given on prophecy. 
They're given on the move of the spirit. They're given on spirituality. They're given on marriage. Everyone seems to love to talk about marriage nowadays. Um, they're, they're given on church order and so on. But I'm a Bible teacher that likes to give the emphasis where the Bible puts it. And so to begin a course on prophecy, I want to tell you where the Bible puts prophecy and how it emphasizes it. And I think some of the facts and figures I begin with may surprise some of you. First of all, could I give you a definition of prophecy? What do we mean by a prophetic verse or a prophetic word? What do we mean actually by that? I'm going to give you a definition now. Later on tonight, I'm going to give you another definition. They're both true, but they're different aspects. So first of all, what is a prophecy? And I've written one down. If you could take this down in your notes, you'll find it useful. A prophecy, a prophecy is any sentence or verse which deals with an event which is still future at the time that the sentence is said or the verse is written. I'm going to repeat that. A prophecy is any sentence or verse which deals with an event which is still future at the time the sentence is said or the verse is written. Now, of course, as we look at the Bible, there are some sentences which we would say are prophetic, but which have been fulfilled. But the point is, when they were written, they dealt with an event that hadn't yet occurred. To us, looking back in history, the events occurred. But the verse was written before the event occurred, and that makes it a prophetic verse. Now, um, if we look at the Bible, how many verses are there then that are prophetic in nature? I can actually give you the exact number of verses, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to reduce it down to a simple fraction. In the Old Testament, one in every three verses is prophetic in nature. In other words, at the time it was written, it dealt with an event which hadn't yet occurred. One in every three. That's a third, a third of the Old Testament. I know what you're thinking. Ah, oh, yeah, but the New Testament doesn't concentrate quite as much as that. Well, you're right. It doesn't concentrate quite as much as that. When we get through uh, to the uh, New Testament, we find a most surprising thing that actually one in every five verses is prophetic in nature. So it's one in every three in the Old Testament and it's one in every five in the New Testament. Now that means that taking the Bible as a whole, we get a, a figure which is just above one in every four verses. One in every four verses, which is prophetic. Directly prophetic in nature. One in every four verses. Now I find that staggering because, of course, Today, we are told by most people, don't touch prophecy. Oh, prophecy is dangerous. Prophecy causes splits. You mustn't touch it. You know what they're telling you? They're actually telling you to take one quarter of your Bible, to rip it out and to throw it away. As if God made a mistake that he should never have put it there. That if he'd been an intelligent God who wanted his body unified, he actually wouldn't have said a word about prophecy. I'll tell you this, if God put a quarter of the Bible as prophetic, it, it's because he thought that a quarter of the Bible should be prophetic. Hallelujah. Do you agree with that? That's the mind of the Lord on the matter. Why is it then 
that we find that people tell us, oh no, no, you mustn't talk about prophecy. Be careful when you mention prophecy. The funny thing is that salvation, the whole subject of salvation, has caused far more splits than prophecy's ever done. You imagine the big uh, war that is going on between Calvinists and Arminians at the moment. They're fighting it out between them. We're not, of course, because you've heard Eternal Security Part 1, right, in the first uh, basic series. We're not fighting it out at all. But they are. So what should we do? Should we stop talking about salvation? Oh, don't preach the gospel. It causes splits. No, of course not. We have a duty to teach the whole counsel of God. And you will find that out of the ten basic series that we are doing, two are on prophecy, but about another half, about another half of another series touches on the subject of prophecy. So we get the balance just about right. Hallelujah. And that's what being a biblically orientated Bible teacher is all about trying to get the balance that the Word of God gives. The funny thing is that you cannot be a Christian without being involved in prophecy. Every person in this room who is a born-again believer is making prophetic statements all the time. Let's take the statement uh, that we hear people say, oh yes, I'm going to be resurrected. That is a prophetic statement. I'm going to rise from the dead, they say. I'm going to have a resurrection body. It's all prophetic statements you're making. Why? Because they're dealing with an event that is yet future. So if you say, hallelujah, I've got eternal life, that's a prophetic statement as well. Everlasting life is a prophetic statement. You know you've got life at the moment. But what you're saying is, I've also got life in a hundred years' time, and a thousand years' time, and two thousand years' time. In other words, you're making a statement about the future. Well, that's a prophetic verse. Praise God. Well, if I ask who prophesies here, we all prophesy. If we lose uh, believers or loved ones who are believers, what do we do? We rejoice, or rather we sorrow, but not as those that have no hope. Why? Because we believe that now they're face to face with God, so shall they ever be with the Lord. So our rejoicing is prophetic in nature. You see, everything about us is prophetic. At the very heart of Christianity, you have prophecy. So try and ignore prophecy, and you may as well give up speaking about Christianity. It's basically prophetic as far as uh, its content is concerned. Jesus himself also put the emphasis on prophecy. You read carefully in the ministry of Jesus, the emphasis is on prophetic statements. All other religious leaders, they always base their reputation on other things. They based it on their ideas, they based it on their morals, they based it on their charisma. Christ based the whole of his reputation on prophetic statements. What is the greatest prophetic statement that he ever made? Well, we're going to see it. He repeats it time and time again. I'm going to die. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to put me to death. And I will be dead, but on the third day I will rise from the dead. Prophecy, 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 prophecy. That he was going to die is prophetic, because it hadn't happened yet. That the chief priests and that the scribes and the elders were going to put him to death is prophetic that he would actually be raised on the third day is prophetic, and that he'd be raised at all is prophetic. You see, the whole of it is based 
on prophecy. And as Jesus went round preaching this message, it was to show his disciples that he knew what he was talking about. In fact, it's all expressed, and let's turn for the first scripture that we're going to deal with, and we will be dealing with quite a lot tonight, to the Gospel of John, and chapter 13, verse 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, and verse 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, and verse 19. And here is what Jesus said about his prophetic statements. In verse 19, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Do you see that? That is the emphasis upon prophecy that Christ put. I'm telling you all these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you'll know who I am. Hallelujah. That is a remarkable statement. Let's have a look, shall we, in the Gospel of Matthew, at the times that he prophesied about his own death and his own resurrection. And let's just read them through, and we'll begin with Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 and verse 21. You imagine, this is in the three and a half years up to his death, constantly telling the people what was going to happen, constantly informing his disciples what was going to happen. He was prophesying all the time, as far as they were concerned. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised again the third day. By stating an event before it happened, you imagine what he was open to. For example, they might have been lenient on that day. And there was Jesus, all ready to be crucified, and, they, and Pontius Pilate might have said, Oh, well, no, no, I've changed my mind. I'm going to let him off with a fine. Well, his prophetic ministry would be absolutely ruined. Or he could have been out on the balcony above the barracks. You know that we've talked about that before. And all the people are gathered there and they're saying, crucify him. And Pilate says to the people, but Christ has done nothing wrong. And the people might say, you know, that's right. Christ has done nothing wrong. Yes, crucify Barabbas, they might have said. If that had happened, Christ would have been wrong. Say, for example, that the, uh, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes had said, you know, I don't like this. I really don't like what's happening. It's against our law. No, I don't think we'll have any part of it. You Romans, if you want to crucify him, you crucify him. If that had happened, Christ would have been wrong. Say Christ, after he had died, had only been in the tomb two days. Right? So that he rose on the second day, or the fourth day, or the fifth day, or the sixth day. He'd have been wrong. Amazing. Or, and this is what our critics would say, Christ didn't rise at all. Any of those things could have happened, but Christ based the whole of his reputation, not on one prophetic statement, on four prophetic statements put in a row. And they all had to come to pass. All right, let's have a look at another. Matthew 17 and verse 9. Matthew 17 and verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain... Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Verse 22 and 23. 
And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Over in Matthew chapter 20, this is all in one gospel. I could go through the others. Matthew chapter 20. And here's Jesus again. Behold, he says, this in verse 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Matthew 26, I haven't finished yet. Matthew 26, verse 32. Matthew 26 and verse 32. And a little statement. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now he told them that beforehand so that when it happened, they might know something about him. What do they know about him? That he knows what's going to happen after death. Oh, there's no one else around who can say that and prove it. If I said, by the way, three days after I die, I'm going to rise from the dead, I haven't got power to do it. But Christ had power to do it. Hallelujah. And Christ had a relationship with a father who was the God of resurrection. And he could do it. And exactly on time, Christ rose from the dead. And what did the angel say to the disciples? Again, the Gospel of Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew 28 and verse 6. Matthew 28 and verse 6. And the angel says, He's not here, for he is risen as he said. Hallelujah. Do you see, Jesus himself put the emphasis on prophecy. Actually, in Jesus' life, there were three main areas of prophetic thought. First of all, he prophesied things that would occur in his own lifetime. You know the type of thing, don't you? Let's see one in each gospel, shall we? And this is just one verse. We're going to be looking at several verses tonight. Turn with me, first of all, to Matthew in chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 13. And here we've got the centurion, and you remember the centurion's servant is ill. Jesus hasn't gone into the house. The servant is ill inside the house. And the centurion speaks to Jesus, and Jesus gives him the answer. Just one verse, we'll see, verse 13. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, be it done unto thee. What had the centurion believed? He believed that Jesus had authority and had power to heal his servant. And Jesus said, that's right. Go your way. As you've believed, so it's been done. Now there was a prophetic statement. They go to the house, or the servant comes running from the house, and what does he say? And the end of this verse, and his servant was healed in the self-same hour. Now that's prophecy fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus. Turn to Mark 11. See one in all the Gospels. Mark 11 and verse 2. And here he's got to make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah and he knows exactly where the donkey is. This is prophetic. And what does he say? Verse 2, 
This is Mark 11, verse 2. And saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And what happened? Off they went, and they found it exactly as he said it would be. Luke is the next gospel, all right? So let's have Luke 22 and verse 10. Luke 22 and verse 10. And here, they wanted to know where they should hold the Last Supper. And Jesus tells them how they'll know it. And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. A man carrying a pitcher of water, which was a very strange sight, and he said, as soon as you go there, there's the man, and you'll see him. That's prophetic. And they went, and what did they see? A man carrying a pitcher of water. You see, Jesus knew. Don't turn to this one, but in John 2, he also knew that when the water was poured out, it would be turned into wine. It's totally prophetic. But all those things, of course, had nothing to do with life and death. When Christ prophesied about his death, he was talking about things that were not going to come true until after he died. And when he rose from the dead, those disciples knew Jesus was the man who knew about death and about eternal life. Hallelujah. He knew. He knew everything about them. Hallelujah. And it tells us something else, that the third batch of prophecies that is, those that Jesus stated and haven't yet been fulfilled are also going to come true. Hallelujah. I'll tell you this. As sure as sure, I shall be resurrected from the dead just like Jesus said. And if an angel had to come and teach the Bible to you tonight, he'd say, but Jesus said it. Hallelujah. Do you see, the whole of Christian assurance is based on prophecy. Because he said it and knew what he was talking about and it came to pass, everything he says about me is also going to come to pass. There's this marvelous statement that we shall be glorified. That when he comes, we're going to be like he is. Oh, hallelujah. Do you think that's not going to come to pass? As sure as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, hallelujah, and appeared to many, I'm going to be glorious, and I'm going to be like him when he comes. Hallelujah. That's a word of prophecy. Look, it's at the very center of our faith. Turn to John 5, and let's see a prophetic statement about me. Hallelujah. And about you. Jesus said these in the same breath that he was talking about his own resurrection. Of course they're going to come to pass. Oh, Hallelujah. Next week I'm going to talk about hope, you know. I'm going to talk about faith and hope. I'll tell you without prophecy, you can't have assurance in your life. Prophecy is the simplest way to peace in this world. Hallelujah. So we're going to see. Have a look at this. John 5, verse 25 and verse 29. All right? Verily, verily, amen, amen, he says. I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Hallelujah. And I know that all those believers that I have known are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. 
And if I should die tomorrow, I'll tell you I'm going to hear it the same time you're going to hear it. Hallelujah. And they that hear shall live. Praise the Lord. That's a prophetic statement. Verse 29. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now there it is. The whole of Jesus' message, therefore, was fundamentally based upon prophetic statements. Oh yes, they say, but that ended after Jesus rose. Did it? What was the emphasis in the early church? You see, we're a fellowship that believe we should go back to the days of the early church. What did the early church do as far as prophecy was concerned? Well, we've got enough troubles in the church without bringing that red herring up. It wasn't their attitude at all. One of the first messages that Jesus gave after he'd risen from the dead was given to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Right? Luke 24 tells us what Jesus spoke about. What do you think he'd have spoken about? About the glory of the Christian life? About church order? You know, well, the first thing you've got to have is elders. Right? That's the very first thing. Let's get some elders put in this church. What did he actually speak about? Have a look at this. Luke 24... And verse 27, the road to Emmaus, and it says this, and beginning at Moses, which was written 1,500 years before the time that Jesus was speaking, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. What did he speak about? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The first thing he did was prophecy. He started off with prophetic teaching. In this case, it was Old Testament prophecy. That's why I'm starting off in the Old Testament, with Old Testament prophecy. What about the early church, after Christ had actually been taken up? What about the early church? I'll tell you, prophecy was a major subject. In fact, the two earliest books that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are largely prophetic in their content. And I mean 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is the next scripture we turn to, we see a most remarkable statement. Would you turn to 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2? his second letter to them. And I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 5. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And verse 5 is the crucial verse. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. When I was with you, I told you these things. How long was Paul actually with the Thessalonians? And how many times did he visit them? That's the question. The answer 
to that question of how long he was actually with them is he was with them once for a period of three weeks, and that was it. Three weeks. He went in, he Bible-taught for three weeks, and then he went out, and it was goodbye Thessalonica. And that was it. Three weeks. Now, I'll tell you, today, if Bible teachers came to Bogner for three weeks, they wouldn't even mention prophecy. But this shows us that in a three-week period, he taught prophecy, they knew all about the man of sin. They knew all about the coming of the Lord and our gathering to be with him. They knew all about the events that were in the temple. In three weeks, he'd majored on prophecy. And then to add injury to insult, his first letter was about prophecy. Amazing. See? And then the second letter was about prophecy. Now, I think that if we take the Bible as our only authority, we cannot cut out prophecy. It's a major topic. Also, of course, the Lord uh, actually said... Uh, don't turn to it, but in John 16, he actually said to John, Howbeit, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come and glorify me. Hallelujah. There was the promise of the Lord to John. And it was marvelously fulfilled as far as John was concerned. Do you know that John was the only member of the congregation when Jesus delivered his last Bible teaching? John, poor old John, exiled on the island of Patmos, and the Lord appears, and he's going to teach his last message. Oh, well, what do you think he'd say? The last message, right? John will not see him until uh, finally that resurrection day comes along. What is the last message of Jesus? It's prophecy. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. And John, sitting on the island of Patmos, was given the most wonderful talk that was ever given on the subject of prophecy. Some people say, oh, I'd love to have been there. There's no reason why you should have been there, because John wrote it all down <laughs> verbatim. Hallelujah. So that means when we read the book of Revelation, which is that which is clearly revealed, we've got the very last words of Jesus. And you be careful. Any man who criticizes the book of Revelation and is a critic of the book of Revelation, and any man who comes along and says, well, I can't make head and a tail of it, honestly. I really sympathize with people. That is not an attack on the book of Revelation. It's a personal attack on the Lord Jesus himself. Now, we've got to get that absolutely clear. It's a personal attack on the Lord himself. For it was the Lord who taught the book of Revelation. You read it carefully. It's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Not of John the Divine. Hallelujah. I bet he wasn't divine at all. Hallelujah. But not at all. It's a personal attack on the Lord who was involved with prophecy. Now, can you see, in the early church, the emphasis was on prophecy. It was on prophecy. It was in prophecy. And that's why we have two whole basic series on the subject of prophecy. I'll tell you this. If prophecy is carefully handled, it's the worst possible weapon as far as our enemies are concerned. There's no weapon that they fear more than the weapon of prophecy. But you know what Satan's done? 
He's put all the church to sleep as far as prophecy is concerned. As soon as I see, as soon as I see the devil getting riled to that extent, and as soon as I see Bible critics getting stirred up about prophecy, I know we're on a winner. Hallelujah. And as soon as I see it, I immediately swap round and let's start concentrating on these things. For in prophecy, we have a major weapon. It's a secret weapon. It's an H-bomb. It's a nuclear member of the arsenal of the Christian. For prophecy is the thing that can defeat every single non-Christian and every single Bible critic absolutely and totally. Prophecy is. No wonder Satan doesn't like us speaking about prophecy. Okay, let me give you another definition of prophecy. I've given you a definition as far as we're concerned. Let's see a definition as far as God's character is concerned. And here's the definition I want to give. A prophecy, a prophecy is an omniscient God is an omniscient God revealing his plan and purpose for the nations. Hallelujah. A prophecy is an omniscient God revealing his plan and purpose to the nations. For our God is a God that likes to reveal himself to us. In the Old Testament, that's why we had prophets. The priests had the job of representing man to God, right? So that the priest would confess the sins of the people. The priest would actually make the sacrifices as far as uh, the people were concerned. The priest would be the one who'd do the praying and lead the worship. But God said, no, no, I don't only want priests. I want a group of people called prophets. And the prophet was to be the man who represent God to the people. Because God not only wanted to hear us talk, he wanted to talk back to us. That's an astounding statement. We see it in the word. The word prophet in, in the Hebrew is the word naveim. And it's spelt not as it's pronounced. It's spelt N-A-B for beta, I-I-M. And in Hebrew, a B or a beth is pronounced as a V. So we get the word there, naveim. And in the Old Testament, the Nevi'im are the prophets. And the word Nevi'im is from the, the verb Nevi, or N-A-B-I, Nevi. And that means to announce. And here are the prophets telling the people what God was going to do. Hallelujah. The essence of prophecy, you see, is that God wants us to know what's happening. Fantastic. He actually wants to communicate and talk with us. 2 Peter. 2 Peter. And chapter 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1. And verse 21. 2 Peter, chapter 1. And verse 21. And here it is. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. In other words, it wasn't the prophets that dreamt up these things. In two weeks' time, we're going to compare a biblical prophecy with the other type of prophecy you get around on the earth today. People like Gene Dixon, right? 
Biblical prophecy, it doesn't come from the will of man, no. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All prophecy in the Bible is directly from the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wants us to know about prophecy. Not just to cause splits. The Holy Spirit loves the Lord and loves the body. He's put it that the body might be edified. All right, let's have a look at Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. And here's the promise from the Lord. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Surely, it says, the Lord God will do nothing except he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. There we are. The Lord isn't going to do anything except he reveals it because he's proved to be God in the fact that he's revealed it. Prophecy shows us the type of God that we've got. I'll be coming on to that in just a moment. To confirm that again, turn to Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 5. Isaiah 48 and verse 5. And here it's a taunt against the idols that the Israelites were worshipping. You've got idols? I'll tell you I'm a different God. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 5. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee, he says. Look, you Israelites, I've told you what's going to happen before it happened. Why? Before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou should say, mine idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Here was God telling them the blessing that was coming upon them and the cursing that was coming upon them. And he says, I'll tell you, I said it would happen before you even made your idol. Hallelujah. In other words, I'm the source of everything. And prophecy proves that I am. There are the gods, but here am I, and I'm different from them all, is what he's saying. Another little verse. Isaiah again, Isaiah 41, 23. Isaiah 41, 23. Show the things that are to come hereafter, he says, and he's speaking to the idols and, and to the priests of Baal. And he says, you show the things that shall come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Go on, he says. He taunts them. You tell us a bit of prophecy then. Go on, you tell us. And they can't. And just to confirm them, two verses on, he gives them some prophecy. Hallelujah. Look, I've raised up one from the north and he shall come. Hallelujah. You Israelites, I'll tell you even now, I'm raising someone up and he's going to come in judgment. Our God is the God of prophecy and I will tell you it's totally incompatible with atheism and any uh, denial of the fact of a God and any Bible critic cannot stand prophecy. He cannot take it. He hates prophecy. If you really want to niggle a Bible critic, you turn to the prophetic passages we're going to be dealing with in the next 28 hours of Bible study. Oh, hallelujah, you'll see them squirm and you'll see them wriggle and I'll tell you they'll have to get every single argument out of the vaults to throw against you. They can't stand against prophecy. It shows us three things. Now remember our definition. 
An omniscient God revealing his plan or revealing his purpose in the nations. Let me tell you three things, shall I, that our, our critics cannot stand and that atheists cannot take. Three things. One, one, prophecy shows us that he's a God who reveals himself. He talks with us. He talks about our present status. He talks about our future status. He talks about our past status. He actually communicates with us, and that means he responds to us. He's not a lump of iron that doesn't move no matter what you do. He's not a God that's so distant. He has no communication. He actually comes and talks with us. You see, many people have a God that doesn't demand anything from them. You know these people. You've met them. They believe that, well, my idea of God is a life force. That's what they say. It's a life force. Or, well, I worship nature. There's an old song, isn't there? I talk to the trees. <laughs> but, but you'll notice the trees never talk back, you see. Or they say, well, chance or fate or something like this, evolution. They're, they're gods. But you know, they're terribly convenient gods because they never want to talk to anyone. You see? Never want to have any communication. They've got no standards. They've got no morals. They don't want to talk. So everyone can carry on just living a happy life. Not doing... Well, their God never interferes with them. Well, oh, well, I believe God is a life force somewhere. Have you talked to the life force? Oh, don't be silly. You don't talk to a life force. Ever so convenient. I'll tell you, it's like a pebble in their foreheads, our type of God. We say, oh, but God speaks to us. God tells us the things that are going to happen. They can't take that. All right, that's the first thing. An atheist cannot stand a prophetic God. Then a God who prophesies also tells you something about himself. He's omniscient. He knows everything. My life and the history of our country and the history of our planet isn't a matter of just chance happenings. Oh, this happens and then this happens and as a result this happens. The fact that God can tell us what's going to happen in 500 years' time shows that it's all got a plan and a planner behind it. Hallelujah. He, he, he is totally omniscient. For us, that gives us wonderful confidence because he knows everything that's going to happen. Praise God. To them, oh, they can't accept that. No, no, that God, you see, is too real. They don't like a God like that. He's too personal. They can't stand that. But notice what else. It tells us, the third thing is, it tells us he's omnipotent. Because history is his story. Hallelujah. He is the one who has planned it and brings it to pass. They're three things that no Bible critic can stand. They loathe those three things. A, a God who actually wants communication, because that God expects something of you, and they don't like that. <coughs> Secondly, he's a God that knows everything. They don't la like that either. And third, he's an omnipotent God who can do anything. Because such a God as this is so real, he will not and he cannot be ignored. Their type of God, whatever it is, you see, doesn't know more than they know. So they can die quite happy. But our God makes statements about after death, about hell, about heaven. You cannot ignore such a God if he exists. And prophecy proves that he does exist. Hallelujah. 
Because in the Bible, we have examples where God has stated something and it has actually come to pass. Can you imagine what that means? That's the most glorious and the most wonderful thing. Hallelujah. But they can't stand it. If you take, for example, the book of Daniel. I don't know whether you know this, but the Bible critics, if they want to criticize the Bible, they criticize prophetic passages. There are more books written criticizing the book of Daniel than any other book. Amazing. Why? Because Daniel is a major book of prophecy. Why do they criticize it? Because it proves our God. And they can't stand that. If you do not believe in God, you cannot believe in prophecy. The book of Daniel actually tells us this, and let me draw it up. That here was a man who lived from 5 to 600 BC who wrote about events that wouldn't occur until 200 BC. That's a gap of 400 years. Now, if he can do that accurately, there has to be a God. You see that? There has to be. And Daniel chapter 11, could you turn with me to Daniel 11? We're not going to deal with it, but let's have a look at it. Daniel chapter 11, which is dated in the first verse. Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. I also, I also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And that is the year 538 BC. And do you know what the book of Daniel, the chapter Daniel 11 goes on to give? A detailed history of all the events that occurred around the year 200 BC. The detail is so phenomenal that it's so exact that even the Cambridge Ancient History uses Daniel as one of its sources because it's so accurate. Hallelujah. It's the hardest chapter in the Bible, Daniel 11. You really have to know your history. It deals with every single king of the Ptolemies for a whole period of about 100 years, right the way down. Now, I, as a Bible believer, who believes in a God who talks to me, a God who's omniscient, a God who's omnipotent, well, that's easy. It's prophecy. But to a Bible critic, oh no, he can't stand it. So, what he has to do, because he can't stand it, is he has to make it into history. There's no other way that he can deal with it. For here in Daniel 11 is such historical accuracy, the only explanation is that it was written after the event. There's no other way. Now, that gives them a major problem. Because they now have to say that the book of Daniel wasn't written in 600 BC. It was written, well, say 176 or 187 BC instead. In other words, after the events have actually occurred. And so, along they come, and they will talk about the date of the book of Daniel. If you want to hear a Bible critic, he talks about the date of the book of Daniel. Do you know what he's doing? He stumbled across prophecy, and he hasn't got an answer for it. Hallelujah. The tragedy is that there are not more than a handful of Christians who can justify the dating of the book of Daniel. I wonder how many people in this room can actually prove that the book of Daniel was written indeed in 600 BC. We're going to do it. Hallelujah. 
right? It's probably number 10 in this series, and we're going to actually prove that the book of Daniel is as old as we say. But can you see the problem? And they rave about the book of Daniel. It's been going on for the, from the 3rd century AD. The man who began it, by the way, was a man with a rather difficult name. His name was uh, Porphyry, P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y, Porphyry. In the 3rd century AD, he wrote 15 volumes called Against the Christians. And most of it was a criticism. What of? Prophecy. Hallelujah. You see, it's a major stumbling block. And prophecy is the greatest weapon as far as we are concerned. Oh, the agony is that it's Satan that's telling the church to ignore prophecy. If Satan can get the church to ignore prophecy, don't you see, we've lost a major weapon as far as our faith and our fight for the faith is concerned. Here is Satan telling us to arm, disarm unilaterally. Hallelujah. And here am I saying, Satan, we're not going to do it. And we're going to go through the prophecies that show our God is a God of prophecy and he's a revealed God and he's a God who is omniscient and omnipotent. Hallelujah. And we will find that as we go through this course, the facts that you are given will prove beyond a shadow of doubt that God is and that God expects. Hallelujah. Let me end tonight on a verse in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Revelation 19 and verse 10. Because here we get a very, very, very important verse indeed, and one that must be the hallmark of the course. We have here John so enamored with the things that the angel has been showing him that he falls down and he worships at the feet of the angel, and he gets told off for it, right? The angel doesn't like that at all. And verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him, he says, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. And here's the statement. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's saying what all of prophecy is about is a testimony to Jesus. He said, I've just come to the end of the book of Revelation. I've told you what it means. You should worship Jesus. For it's Jesus that's revealed. All Old Testament prophecy has its fulfillment in Christ. It's all there to glorify Christ. Christ, the hope of the nations. Christ, the hope of Israel. Christ, the hope of every individual who will believe. Christ, the hope of all of history. Hallelujah. Present New Testament prophecy is also in Christ. All the fulfilled prophecies end in Christ. And his own prophecies reveal his nature as God, that Christ is omniscient, that Christ is omnipotent, and that he knows what's happening. But I'll tell you this, future prophecy also um, comes to testify about Jesus, not anymore as the one who has died for our sins, but the one who is the eternal conqueror. The one who is the great and mighty victor. The one who has won over Satan and over every force of darkness and over every force of sin. Hallelujah. And the one who not only began my faith, but has the power and the authority to see it into completion and conclusion. I will tell you, I am safe in my salvation tonight because he is a God of prophecy. Hallelujah. You use prophecy. The unbeliever will never thank you for it. 
and neither will Satan. For him, it's the very savor of defeat. For him, it's the savor that God does exist. Hallelujah. Next time, I'm going to deal with why God has given prophecy to the believers and what it actually does in your own life. God bless you.